0: It took me a long time to disabuse myself of my romanticism, my myopia about being black in America. That reminds me of what someone in India said to me when I was there the first time about all these tall, white, bearded, wealthy Western seekers looking for spiritual enlightenment among the poverty in India. You want to come here and look for truth? You want to come here and look like us? Fine, give me the keys to your condo. I'm out of here.
1: That's Michael DeWild, director. Of the Koozie Business Ethics Initiative at the Seedman College of Business at Grand Valley State University. This week, we're bringing you the first installment of a new series for the podcast. We'll offer some clips taken from lectures given as part of the Howenstein Center's Wheelhouse Talk series. In that series, Gleaves Whitney, along with the program manager of the Cook Leadership Academy, Chad Dowding, invite leaders from the community, sometimes professors at Grand Valley or folks in politics or law or business to come and talk to undergraduates and graduate students about leadership. Now, speakers can take these talks in many directions. Their goal is simply to bring to bear their own experiences on the question, what does it mean to be an ethical, effective leader? Sometimes speakers lay out a set of points or principles, but often they talk about something more personal. Sometimes, and often in a really moving way, speakers use their talks as occasions To think about what it means to lead a good life. So in this new series for the podcast we'll offer some clips from these talks that center on a theme or set of themes. In this episode we hear from two professors at Grand Valley State. The first Michael DeWild directs as I said the Cousy Business Ethics Initiative and has taught for a number of years in Grand Valley's philosophy department. Michael has had a fascinating career. I had him as a student He talked me into going to India with him and a few other students. Uh, The experience changed my life. Michael came to the philosophy department with an MDiv from Harvard, as you'll learn. At Grand Valley, he's had a career that's taken him on a number of occasions to India and Nepal. He's had a career that's allowed him to bring a humanities education to folks in prisons through a program he founded called Community Working Classics. Now Michael consults major companies and business leaders in ethics. He came to the Hauenstein Center to talk with students about his work and how he's managed to fit so many roles, so many missions, into one career. He begins, well, at the beginning, his childhood just outside Detroit. I'm eight years old and Detroit is on fire.
0: Detroit's just down the road, not at all far from where I'm playing baseball, wrestling with our dog, waiting for dinner. The National Guard goes by, then the Army, a lot of guys with guns. In Detroit, there are black people lined up in the streets, faces contorted by rage, hate, menace, maybe a kind of longing. I see that race matters. I don't know how, I don't know why, but I see that it matters. The 6 o'clock news says 14 killed and then 20 and then more. Blocks of the city of Detroit are destroyed. Man, what is going on? I'm nine years old and Martin Luther King Jr. is gunned down and so is Bobby Kennedy. I'm looking at a picture in Time Magazine of a South Vietnamese soldier holding in each hand the severed head of two Viet Cong. He's smiling. I can't look away from it. What's happening? I spend my summer days riding my bike, trying to keep up with my older brother and his friends. It's all sunshine and Pepsi and station wagons at the beach. Life is good, but it's tenuous, too, isn't it? At night, the wars in Vietnam and Detroit are back on our black-and-white television set and in the magazines and newspapers that my parents describe, or subscribe to. I'm a curious kid and a pretty good reader. And by the age of 10, maybe I already know too much about body bags, the Black Panthers, lynchings, Freedom Riders, the Tet Offensive, domino theories, draft resistance, and LSD. And then in Life magazine, there's a picture of a young woman in a pair of bell bottoms and nothing else at a place called Woodstock. And I'm thinking, damn, I cannot believe I am missing all this. My parents, to their everlasting credit, did not let me go to Woodstock at nine years old. CKLW, so the major radio station out of Windsor, Detroit, is my lifeline to Motown, my soundtrack for all of this <coughs> as, I'm, as I'm growing up. Oops, I hope that's not symbolic in any way. <laughs> anyway, it's all Temptations, The Supremes, Little Stevie Wonder, Barry Gorder, the found, Gordy, the founder of, founder of Motown. Keeps the Funk Brothers in the basement coming up with bass lines and harmonies like nobody's ever heard before. I'm 12 and I play basketball and I worship Dave Bing and Bob Lanier, black athletes who perform heroic feats night after night. I've got a drum set and I play along with Sly and the Family Stone and Coleman Hawkins. And like so many kids who grew up outside of cities like Chicago and Detroit and Philadelphia, there's only one thing I want to be when I grow up, and that's black. The injustice that I should have been born white. What real chance would I have now to fulfill my dreams, my real aspirations? I'm not kidding. That's how I thought. I think a lot of kids do think that, thought like that. But then I'm 16 years old. I'm driving back from Pontiac back to my rural outpost north of Clarkston. I'm with a friend who's a whip-smart kid who uses all of his intelligence to no good ends. We have the windows down and Led Zeppelin going in about 180 decibels. We've also got several bagged ounces of marijuana in the back seat which was the purpose of the trip to Pontiac. Some will keep, most will sell. That was the plan, anyway, until the flashing lights. The officer is polite. He asks us about the taillight, our plans for the evening, if we'd mind stepping out of the car, how we feel about jail, that sort of thing. <laughs> he finds the dope, of course. It's a windy night. He makes us distribute it over a nearby field. Bye bye. He sees how scared we are. He makes us sweat for a while then tells us we're free to go. But before he disappears into the night, he looks at us for a few seconds and he asks us matter-of-factly, boys, have you considered the possibility that you're idiots? (laughs) Funny thing, officer, I was just kind of thinking the same thing. (laughs) As close as I am to Detroit, though, to Pontiac, it's still years before I come to understand. I expect I don't really understand it until I start teaching in the prison. How differently that scenario plays out if I'm a black kid, if I'm the black kid in Pontiac who sold us the dope in the first place. How unlikely it is I'm let off with the loss of my drugs and a warning if my skin's a different color. I'm 16, I don't have a clue how fortunate I am to be the white son of an affluent America. Fast forward, I'm 29, I have a Harvard degree but it's from the Divinity School, the economy's terrible and I'm down on my luck living in my brother's house in St. Louis. I see an ad from a community organizing group in Chicago they're promising long hours for a little pay. That sounds about right to me. So off I go. I take nothing with me. I get there. It Turns out they weren't kidding. Not only that, but because I seem willing and more or less able, they put me in charge of a project they've got going right, right away. To bring me up to speed, they take me down to East St. Louis, where there's a similar project going on. Oh my god, have you been to East St. Louis? I wasn't completely naive. I'd been to India. I'd seen some perfectly horrible, terrible things. But this bombed out, forgotten, forsaken, hellhovel place was right here in the middle of the United States of America. For Christ's sake, what's going on? Everybody's black, poor, desperate, and that mirrors much of what I'm seeing in the south side of Chicago as well. It's taking me a long time to disabuse myself of my romanticism, my myopia about being black in America. It reminds me of what someone in India said to me when I was there the first time about all these tall, white, bearded, wealthy Western seekers looking for spiritual enlightenment among the poverty in India. You want to come here and look for truth? You want to come here and look like us? Fine. Give me the keys to your condo. I'm out of here. Except neither the poor Indians nor the poor residents of East St. Louis were going anywhere. I don't know. All of a sudden, at that moment, I felt like I'd been lied to my whole life. By whom? About what? Equality? Opportunity? What America was? What it promised? Why didn't someone, anyone, tell me what was going on? I'm energized by that, a certain amount of righteous indignation, I suppose. So I go back to Chicago, back to my work there with a zealous enthusiasm. If we needed to burn Chicago down to make some changes, then by God, us good guilty white folk would do that. We, I, would lead my downtrodden masses to the promised land. I warned you earlier that I've got a degree from a divinity school. Excuse the language, but we actually do talk like that. <laughs> I was working with middle-aged black women, for the most part, women who worked, with, uh, or worked as home health care aides, and who are now organizing, with my help supposedly, to try to get somewhere close to minimum wage for the work they did, keeping other people alive. These women were truly the salt of the earth, doing the work nobody else wanted to do, and doing it for less than anybody else would ever even consider. We had a big conference coming up. I was in charge of helping formulate the message. Our successes to that point, our strategy going forward, um, even though the philosophy of the place was to empower the people of the rank and file, never to be out front. So we didn't ever take credit for anything. We didn't do the speaking ourselves. For two or three weeks before this big gathering, I was working with a woman who would be speaking at the event, laying out the challenges and opportunities we as a fledgling movement had. I was at her apartment. Um, She came to the office, we talked, and man, did I write one hell of a speech. I mean, really, at the end of the day, all she had to do was get up there, Read what I had written, and I can envision all these women rising as one, filing out the door, going down to City Hall, and finally ushering in an age of justice for all. Again, that's what I thought. My speech had solid research, it had impeccable logic, it had a well-placed quote or two, a touch of emotion, righteous indignation. My high-priced education was on display, and this thing was really, it was so beautiful I could have cried. You know. Ah, come the day, we're in the Congress Hotel Ballroom, 250 strong. I'm taking notes and waiting for my turn to bask in the glory of my own words. Charlene gets up there. She looks at the pages in front of her. She looks at the audience, and she looks at me. She's nervous. I get it, but we'll be patient. No problem. She looks up again. She doesn't look too good. And then Helen, the organization's president, who's sitting in the first row, says, It's all good, babe. Just, Just get up. Read the paper. But she can't. She looks at me again, and this time there are tears in her eyes. And in front of me and the whole crowd, she says, Michael, I'm really sorry. I just never really did learn to read all that good. Okay. She's apologizing to me. Michael, I'm sorry. I just never really learned to read all that good. Shit. <laughs> now here's the difference between me at that time in my life and a person of some actual wisdom and empathy. My first thought was, once what she had said had sunk in, was, all right, well, I'll get up and read it. I mean, why deprive the crowd of my speech, right? But Helen, sizing up the moment, went up, put her arm around this woman and said, Honey, who cares? You just say it from your heart. You just tell, you, tell us what you want to tell us. Say what you want to say. Charlene dries her eyes. She gives me one last look, and she starts talking. And talking. Oh, man. Martin Luther King Jr. had nothing on this woman that particular morning in Chicago. Really, she brought down the house. It was so much better than what I had written. It was so much closer to what moves people to actually act. I sat there with a copy of my crumpled up speech in my hands, feeling about two inches tall, and thought to myself, Michael, have you considered the possibility that you're an idiot? Not once in three weeks had it occurred to me to ask if she was comfortable reading, if she could read, despite already months in the south side of Chicago. I knew illiteracy rates were high. So, moral or lesson number one in our three tales here. Um, could you please try framing your response in the form of a question? Can you be at all curious about anything besides yourself, knowing thyself, the stuff that I was weaned on. Of course, it's important. You know, you want to try to get there if you can. But how about knowing something about other people? That would have been a little more useful, actually, in that circumstance. Can you, can I now, bring some spirit of inquiry to bear in my work, in my life? Does it occur to me even now? Does it occur to us? Ask the question first, rather than simply offering up our own opinions, our own point of view. A bit of an aside here, sometimes when I'm consulting, and I'm sorry for the the word consulting. Everybody and their brother is a consultant, right? If if it's more palatable to you, think of me as a sort of weird philosophical advisor that a handful of companies in their infinite wisdom have decided to employ. (laughs) Um, But if I'm working with somebody who's especially intelligent and ambitious, I'll insist that at certain points in our work, they can only ask questions. They cannot intimate at the answers. They can't ask leading questions. They can't make declarative statements for 10 minutes, 15 minutes in our conversation. It's all gotta be questions. People find that remarkably difficult to do. I want to get them to, to habituate that to them, but it's very, very difficult. I suppose, looking back on all this sort of thing, it, it did lead, um, at least parts of it ultimately, to the Working Classics program here at Grand Valley. And you know, in the last 15 years, I suppose it's one of the reasons that Gleaves asked me to speak, I've gotten a fair bit of recognition, and even some money in the form of grants, for the Working Classics program. Uh, this, this idea where myself and Grand Valley students go out and we offer courses in the humanities and the liberal arts to places, to prisons and places like Job Corps where the people would not otherwise have access to this kind of of material. Um, And the heart of that for me was spending 14 years in a prison in Muskegon, teaching largely to black men. I wonder if I'd have done that without that year in Chicago, without Charlene, without Detroit, or without my parents' library and their willingness to subject their small children to the nightly news in the late 1960s. I doubt it. All right, tale number two: carpentry convicts, crucible consulting, and a question about crack cocaine. Maybe I'm tempted to say um, this has nothing to do about me and crack Uh, (laughs) cocaine. I feel like I primed you with the marijuana story, so I just want to be careful about that. (laughs) It's like it doesn't get worse. It's not a gateway drug. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Look, I I am honored to be here today, but it's also a bit odd for me, and I'll tell you why. This is ostensibly about the Howenstein fellows, these uh, remarkably um, gifted Grand Valley students who are and will be leaders in the community and industry and in the professions, about what they might learn from speakers who who come in, who have figured out some reproducible or transferable principles or skills. The trajectory—sorry, trajectory—trajectory of my life, however is so improbable that not only could you not reproduce it i'm not at all sure why anyone would even try so here's what i mean if you came up to me and said well being a professor looks like fun what do i what do i have to do any reasonable person would say go get a phd right it's the first step no four-year accredited university will even begin to look at you anymore without a phd i don't have a phd i'm the last person in america who's ever going to get tenure without one and you say Um, Okay, well, that's not very helpful. Uh, So what else you got? What about this business consulting advising thing? That sounds intriguing. How do you do that? And again, any reasonable person would say, well, get some background in business. Take some business courses. Take some courses in organizational psychology. Do some marketing. Do some managing. Work your way into it. I had none of that. Zero. When I was plucked from my philosophy office. You know, I was thinking about maybe not saying this, but... um, going on the lines of qualifications here. I've been teaching ethics for the past 20 years, so there must be a joke in there somewhere about my qualifications to teach ethics as well. Um, But I think I'll skip the joke and just say, I do think we're drawn, one way or the other, to things that are especially difficult for us, things that are hard for us. One way or the other, they come back. All right, so then you may ask, well, look, since you don't seem to have any actual qualifications at all of any kind, how do you get to do all the stuff you get to do? You're forever flying around the world and talking to this person and working with these cool businesses and developing new programs and blah, blah, blah. You know, How does that happen? I like to think, by the way, that those people who ask me that question are actually interested in the answer rather than, really? No, really, who let you in? How, how did this happen? <laughs> Where is the door? <laughs> all right, let's take a quick, brief look at what is my, I don't know what to call it, my, my abstract expressionist approach to life. See if there are any lessons to be gleaned. <clears throat> the usual advice, and its sound advice, would be, of course, there's a strategy. It's linear, certain qualifications, hoops you have to jump through, no doubt about that. That's all good. Uh, but let's see if we want to stick with that, or at least allow for the possibility that some intuition might play a role. So if you're following me, you know, good luck to you. But here you are. First thing you do is you drop out of your original graduate school program. Because it's only making you better educated, better educated, it's not making you wiser, and you end up feeling hollow and kind of adrift. Then you meet somebody like Lewis Rosenberg, a master car- carpenter, but more importantly, a masterly human being, who is generous and patient while you learn the craft, but who's also insistent you work harder and better than you ever have before in your life. And You find yourself on rooft- rooftops overlooking Boston <laughs> in the middle of winter, unfortunately. Um, You learn from carpentry that no amount of charm or BS can actually put the door in place or make the door work. You actually have to build it. You show up in the morning. There are blueprints, tools, materials, and space. Today is something that someone will live with and depend on for a long time. It's either in place and functioning or it's not. It's easy to be a bad carpenter. I learned that. It's not all that hard to be a mediocre one. It's really difficult to be good. Lewis would hate in it that I would romanticize in any way uh, carpentry. But part of what he taught me is, is just that. Just do the work. Do it well and stop making things either more or less than what they are. Next, here it gets just a touch mystical, if you bear with me. Feel an irresistible and irrepressible urge to apply to graduate school at Harvard and only Harvard. And while you wait for their answer, go to India. The urge isn't really a still small voice, as much of a kind of dawning or realization that won't go away. One of those, if you build it, they will come moments. I don't know where those moments come from or why exactly. When they have been as strong as they were in those, instance, in those instances when they've come, I've always said yes to them, or at least I've always tried to say yes to them. It's a sensibility, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an intuition. And it's when I've done so, said yes, that I am as far from being an idiot as I can get even when what I'm doing makes absolutely no sense to anybody else in my life. So go. Apparently having a beard for all this stuff is very important. (laughs) So you might want to think about that as well. Go, wander around all over India for seven weeks on your own, alone with your thoughts. Well, alone with your thoughts and a billion Indians. (laughs) Trying to find words big enough to make sense, of this kind of shift that you feel in your life now that you've been touched by the Ganges, by the Himalayas, by beggars and holy men, by Khan artists and shamans, by the overwhelming kindness and care of those who don't know you but somehow have seen right through to what you actually need. Come back. Go to Harvard because for some reason they let you in. Go to Chicago and then call your old mentor Stephen Rau and ask if you can teach philosophy at Grand Valley for a year before who knows what comes next after that. Start the Working Classics program while you're there, begin teaching in prison. Meet Dan Engels, get sent back to Nepal to start a foundation to build schools up in the mountains. Learn something about lean manufacturing from what Dan does here at home. Start thinking about being in Grand Rapids forever. Then meet Jeff Cousy, which is when it gets really interesting. One could not make up Jeff Cousy. He's the owner of the Cousy Company here in town, a former professor with a law degree who majored in English. Cousy gets interested in my various adventures, what we're trying to accomplish in the prison by teaching humanities liberal arts to folks who don't have access to them. And they ask if I could do something similar with this company. You see how improbable this is. Are you taking notes? Are you writing it down? This is the path to follow? I say to Kuzi, yes, why not? Most of the successful people I know say yes to stuff they don't know how to do. I'm just going to repeat that because I think it's really critical. Most of the successful people I know say yes to stuff they don't actually know how to do. The reason we say yes, I'm going to include myself in among the successful people even though I know I'm not as successful as most of the successful people I know. Even though we're remarkably underqualified, we say yes, is because we've had some series of crucible moments. Some ways in which we've tested ourselves, put ourselves in situations that were truly difficult for us when we're left to figure things out more or less on our own. We survive. Having survived, that gives us some basic confidence. We feel we can, in fact, figure it out, whatever it turns out to be. Um, plus, we all can read, so we just go to the bookstore and pick up a book on the subject, figure it out. I'm very glad, though, that one of my crucibles did not come in Vietnam. I was a couple of years too young for that. I wouldn't want to compare war with anything else that I've been through, though certain experiences on the south side of Chicago may have been similar. But for me, Chicago, carpentry, Harvard, extended meditation retreats, the prison teaching, and of course, romantic relationships seemed like crucible enough. Um, When you do say yes, though, to these rare and impossible opportunities when they come up, and you should always say yes, be prepared to work even harder than you've ever worked before. Don't get married until late in life, because you will be wedded to the work. It'll be so fascinating and so interesting, and they will call in the middle of the night. No one will understand why you actually do want to get up and go. Kuzi definitely puts me to the test. We go back and forth with observations, references, suggestions, at first veiled, but then kind of only thinly veiled, but still more or less respectful jabs at one another's methods. And then one day we're emailing about one of his people, and I suggest a particular kind of development plan for this person that involves maybe more patience and more understanding than this person really needs. Uh, and Jeff writes back in an instant, and his message is simple. Are you on crack? No, Jeff, I'm not on crack. I assume it's his polite, gentle way, at least I'm guessing, of suggesting I may be an idiot, though, if not on crack. He makes me define and defend what I'm doing all the time, and I'm reading and writing again like I'm in graduate school, trying, one, to do good for his company, but two, I'm trying to shut the SOB up. Right? It doesn't work. You cannot shut him up. That turns out to be a very good thing, because like so many others I'm fortunate to work with, he's a terrific teacher. I'll just give you one, one story from, because I wasn't there when he did this, but I think it's worth hanging on to. I refer to it in my classes sometimes. He said one of his employees came up to him and said, I want to make more money. Jeff said, no, you don't. And he said, no, no really, I, I, I want to make, I need to make more money. He said, no, no, you don't. Said, what do you mean? He says, no. He said, anybody who really wanted to make more money would be going to school, would be proposing innovative and valuable proposals, would be talking to other people you need to talk to to develop those things. He said, there are a whole list of things that you would be doing if you really wanted to make more money. You clearly don't want to make more money. Seems like a useful <laughs> rule of thumb. By the way, I had a similar moment with Shelly Padnos. I, I work with, with them. I, I adore Shelly. I'm not saying that just because she's a chair of of the Board of Trustees at Grand Valley. I actually I truly do. Um, and they, they had hired me to do the, some um, issue with one of their, their executives. And I ended up doing a, a 360. So I talked to everybody that this person works with and talked to them and I write up this report. I'm really good at writing reports. I do that really well. Um, and I gave that to her and we're meeting. And at the top of the list, you know, I, you know there's, um, I think there's just some passive aggressive behavior there's some passive-aggressive behavior that's really it's getting in the way, it's a problem. And Shelly looks down, she looks up, she looks at me, she says, look, she said, half the companies, the company is passive-aggressive. <laughs> half the world is passive-aggressive. Really? That's all you've got? Well, um, no, of course not. Of course, I've got a whole, that's just the first one in the whole long list of things I have to, to offer you in terms of the evaluation. Now, I'll tell you, when those moments happen, and they do happen, the hair, of course, does stand up on the back of my neck. Um, Bottom falls out of my stomach, right? I've I've screwed up in some way. But I live for those moments. I live for those moments. Why? Because that's where the work is. That's what's exciting, right? That's where you actually learn something. Um, But you need your crucible moments. You need whatever your version of India, of the south side of Chicago, whatever those things are, you need those moments first so that you don't get debilitated or defensive when the criticism comes. You can stand up to it. You don't do like, honestly, too many Grand Valley students that I see is that in the face of criticism, they kind of shrivel up and die, right? You don't want to shrivel up. You want to know that if you've got something to offer, bam, you're going to come back. Criticism is not going to derail you. If it's accurate, fine. Listen to it,
1: learn from it. If it's not, what's your argument? What are you going to say? That was Michael DeWild. I remember thinking when Michael gave that talk, that he must have felt a lot of doubt and uncertainty in his career. He never followed any clear tried and true path. He could have never known that a given decision or event, say his choice to take up carpentry, would end up leading him to a philosophy department and then to the helm of a business ethics initiative. In order to have the sort of career that Michael's had, it seems like he'd have to develop, or anyone would have to develop, a high level of tolerance for ambiguity and uncertainty. But of course, nothing is ever certain it's trite to say, perhaps, but profoundly true. Try as you might, you can't expect or anticipate the unexpected. That's the theme of Charles Pasternick's wheelhouse talk. Pasternick is professor of classics at Grand Valley. In true classicist form, he begins his talk with reference to a Greek term, aprostoketan. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, he will in his talk. Uh, Pasternick defines that term as the unexpected, By breaking the term down for the audience, he shows how it references something which is not in principle impossible, but that is nevertheless certainly not expected. He offers that definition and then tells his story.
2: It was the uh, 14th of July, 2014. It was a crisp, lovely uh, summer day. Um, uh, It was about nine o'clock in the morning. I had, as I was uh, pretty regularly doing at that point in time, uh, dropping off uh, my daughters uh, for their summer activities. We had ridden with our bikes. I was a, I was an eager and avid and uh, I think quite a, quite a skilled and confident urban bicyclist. And I was on my way downtown. I was in fact on my way to this building. I was on my way to Steelcase Library um, in order to uh, do some work. I was. Uh, Looking forward to spending the next year engaging in a number of scholarly projects. I had been awarded a sabbatical leave. Uh, My family and I were uh, planning to go to Germany. Uh, We were planning to spend four months in Germany where I had been uh, invited as a visiting scholar. Uh, We had gotten the visas, we had uh, booked the tickets, and we were all set to go uh, about a month from then, about a month from the uh, 14th of July. And I was riding down Fulton Street on my way to uh, the downtown campus here and uh, marveling. I mean, this, this, this may sound contrived, but I was marveling at how wonderful it was, how fortunate I felt about all of these plans that were on the point of coming to fruition. And, um, you know, just sort of thinking about how wonderful it was uh, to be outside, to be breathing that crisp air, and just feeling just profoundly uh, content. Um, and then as I was coming down Fulton Street, um, cresting the hill at College Avenue, uh, I, no, no traffic around me, uh, I was approaching uh, Prospect Avenue uh, down by GRCC, and a minivan in the oncoming lane uh, was, uh, I'm sure, looking uh, ahead of me Uh, to see whether any other traffic was coming over the uh, crest of the hill and, uh, you know, uh, was not looking at all for uh, bicyclists in the lane. And, of course, uh, this person turned right in front of me uh, and cut me off. And I was, uh, you know, moving at a reasonable rate of speed. I was down in the drops of my bike. I braked hard. And uh, qu- quite to my surprise, uh, stopped uh, cold in the street. I had expected to skid and to slide. And I went over my handlebars. The bike is in fact untouched. Um, and uh, then uh, ran uh, headfirst into the side of this minivan. And I broke my neck. And, you know, went from this to this. this was taken uh, uh, early in my time at Mary Free Bed, um, at a time at which um, I was paralyzed from my chest down, and uh, had lost much of the use of my hands, and was uh, uh, contemplating uh, life in a, in a motorized uh, chair, with uh, very limited abilities. I mean, I was, an, I, in fact, I am a quadriplegic as a result of my injuries. Uh, you know, a permanently disabling spinal cord injury as a result of the fracture of my C6 and C7 cervical vertebrae. I spent eight weeks in a surgical halo, so the parts of me that could move were immobilized in that particular structure. And it was a long process. I spent three months at Mary Freebed under their expert care. Um, after three and a half weeks, I was able to wiggle my toes. Um, and from there onwards, it was a matter of re- working to recover that motion, but learning how to stand, uh, learning how to step, learning how to walk, and of course, you know, it, it, is, it is a miracle uh, to me that uh, I'm able to uh, be here standing upright. I mean, I won't dance a jig or anything like that for your, your benefit. But it is simply astonishing to me, and I feel incredibly blessed and fortunate to have uh, had the uh, recovery that I have, and in particular to be able to return to teaching now at Grand Valley um, this fall. I can't tell you how important that is and what it's meant to me to be able to do that. And so by the time I left the hospital, um, I was barely um, walking out under my own power and uh, on my way to um, the recovery of as much of a a return to my my former self and to my new life as I could. I've discussed in greater detail the progress of of my recovery and, and my experiences at the talk that Abigail mentioned, the last lecture that I was very glad to be invited to deliver by the GVSU Student Senate. Um, I'll give a little plug, I guess. It's on YouTube, Um, Google Last Lecture, Pazdernik. I promise you there isn't a lot there that's gonna turn up. And, uh, you know, I invite you to to see what I had to say on that occasion. Um, I was at a very different place uh, than I am now. And that's also something that I've reflected on as I've been thinking about our experiences here today. But while I want to use my experience as a way of framing the discussion that I hope that we'll have today and the sort of thinking that I have, I don't want that to be the sole focus of what we're talking about. Uh, In particular, I want to think about connections between the experiences that we have as human beings in the 21st century and what we can recover of the lives of people of course, who lived very different lives than we have a long time ago. And so if I play my cards right and I time this talk in exactly the right way, we'll get to the point of discussing not only my situation, but also this fellow's situation. Uh, Some of you may know who it is. Uh, The Howenstein Center did a great job of anticipating me and putting this image on the back of the postcard they sent out, so you might or might not have seen it there. But uh, I'm gonna uh, avoid a a spoiler Uh, in case you don't happen to know who this is and simply reflect upon his situation. Uh, This is a lovely Greek vase, uh, Athenian, uh, produced in the uh, 5th century in the characteristic red figure style. Um, It's unusual for having such a large and detailed portrait on it, and if as we look at what's going on, I think you can make out what's going on, but in case there's any doubt, this sort of weird kind of Django like structure is actually a pyre. It's a, it's a campfire. It's a stack of kindling wood. And on top of it is perched on this elaborate uh, seat, elaborately decorated seat with a little footstool, is a rather imposing figure and quite a nice. Um, Um, diaphanous gown, obviously uh, very expensive and very elaborate. He's holding a staff or a scepter. He has a crown or a diadem or a laurel upon his head and he's actually using this device. He's got a shallow bowl and he's in the process of pouring a libation. He's making an offering. He's offering a prayer to a divinity um, as he's seated upon this structure. And if you see the fellow next to him here, who is bent over, he's actually not you know, sort of doing anything in particular to this guy, it's just a, a feature of the composition here. This fellow is taking what I think you can see are blazing torches and is in the process of setting this whole structure alight. And so this fellow on the top of the pyre is in the process of being burnt alive at the stake, essentially. So he's having an awfully bad day, isn't he? <laughs>
1: That was Charles Pazirnik beginning his Wheelhouse Talk. He introduces that Greek vase, but doesn't tell us who, in fact, is on it for a little while. Pazirnik discusses some of his own experiences as a leader both inside and outside the academy. He comes back to the vase to discuss it and its
2: significance here. This fellow is a historical figure, a representation of a historical figure. His name is Croesus. He's not a Greek, he's a Lydian. And he was the king of an empire that extended from Central to Western Asia Minor and brought brought, uh, the Lydians into contact both with the Greeks in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Aegean but also with the great Near Eastern civilizations, the Medes and the Persians and the Babylonians among others and the Egyptians. Okay, so a, a real crossroads and in particular, uh, from his uh, capital at Sardis, he was able both to uh, 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 come into contact, but also to incorporate uh, some of the Greek cities on the western coast coast of Asia Minor, but at the same time be drawn into uh, the, the politics of the ancient Near East. And Croesus was uh, uh, a risk taker but also a cautious sort of fellow. I want to suggest that he pursued this sort of blue line, red line strategy because he conceived of the idea that uh, he should uh, take on a fellow named uh, Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia, who had uh, engaged in some empire building of his own. And so he was wondering whether he should take the risk of preemptively attacking Cyrus and potentially defeating the Persians and stopping the expansion of their empire. And how was he gonna calculate the risks of such a move? Well, he bought insurance, right? He he hedged his bets. And he bought insurance uh, the the best way that one can buy insurance in the ancient world. He researched uh, the market very carefully and he engaged the best expert advice he could find. He actually went uh, through his uh, representatives to each of the ancient oracles in the world, and he tested them. He actually tested them. He tried to figure out which were actually capable of predicting uh, a future course of events and which weren't. And he decided that the oracle at Delphi was one that could really be relied upon, that he would place his uh, portfolio with the oracle at Delphi. And once he made that determination, he spent lavishly. He sent uh, wonderful gifts to Delphi and he made sure that he was on the right side of, uh, of, of Apollo, the, god of, the Greek god of prophecy. And so after he had done all of his due diligence, uh, he went to the oracle and he said, what would happen if I were to attack Cyrus of Persia? And the oracle came back, perhaps you've heard the story. If you attack Cyrus of Persia, you will destroy a great empire. And Croesus thought, great, let's go for it. You guys are nodding and smiling, right? You know the punchline, right? What didn't he do? As he found out to his detriment afterwards, as as, uh, the oracle told him, you didn't come back and ask which empire you were gonna destroy if you attack Cyrus of Persia. And of course, he fulfilled the oracle, not by destroying the Persian empire, but by destroying his own empire, right, by being, Uh, defeated by Cyrus in Cappadocia and then besieged uh, in his capital at Sardis, where he was captured and where, again, uh, he ended up uh, on the point of being burnt at the stake. Now Herodotus, who is our source for this story, another Greek historian, frames this account of of Croesus and his adventures by telling the story of the visit to uh, Sardis of a Greek wise man named Solon, Solon of Athens. Solon came to, to Croesus' court, this was before he attacked Cyrus of Persia, and this is as the scene was imagined in the 17th century. Croesus made a point of showing Solon all of his wealth, the extent of his empire, and then asked Solon, who is the most fortunate human being you know? And I'll, I'll have to make the story short, um, so I won't go into all of the details, but basically Solon's answer was, well, it ain't you. <laughs> and Croesus said, how could this be? And Solon says, let me tell you something. You don't understand something pretty fundamental about your situation, okay? And this is the, this is the crux of what he had to say to Croesus. Uh, this is Solon speaking to Croesus. In a long span of time, it's possible to see many things that one does not want to see and to suffer many things as well. I set the limit of human life at 70 years. Out of all the days in these 70 years, not one brings anything at all like another. So, Croesus, man is entirely what befalls him. He's entirely a creature of chance. He's entirely the creature of the unexpected. Okay. And so Solon says, Croesus, you're at the top now. You feel fortunate now. It's a beautiful day, the sky is blue, but all of that can change in an instant. And while you're a living human being, you just never know what's going to happen from one moment to the next. Well, and of course, what happened to Croesus? He took his chance, and his expectations were thwarted. And so there he is on the pyre. I'm sorry about this. I hope it reproduces well enough. This is now a 16th century imagining of the scene, rather different from the vase that I showed you, but there's Croesus upon his pyre about to be burnt at the stake. And this is his conqueror. This is Cyrus of Persia. And Cyrus has set up a spectacle that on the face of it was, uh, was entirely justified here. Croesus had uh, attacked him uh, a premeditated attack, he had been defeated, Cyrus felt perfectly justified in doing the worst thing he could imagine to, uh, to Croesus, and undoubtedly uh, laughing uh, in uh, delight, uh, cackling evilly as he did it, right? He was going to take Croesus and he was going to set the pyre alight and demonstrate his own uh, supremacy and preeminence. And so we reach this moment at which Croesus is there upon the pyre, the, the, the lackeys are going forward with their torches, they're setting the pyre alight, and Croesus looks to the sky and he says three times, Solon, 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 naming Solon the Greek sage, the sage, who had come and given him the, his advice about how foolish it was to imagine that you're fortunate as a human being. Well, this piqued Cyrus's attention, right? Well, who is this Solon and what is this about? And so he actually sent people Uh, interpreters because, of course, he was a Persian and Croesus was a Lydian. What is all of this about? All right. Well, Croesus explains. Croesus explains through the interpreters to Cyrus that in the beginning Solon the Athenian had come and seen all his fortune and spoken as if he despised it. Now everything had turned out for him, for Croesus, as Solon had said, speaking no more of him than of every human being, especially those who think themselves fortunate. This is reported to Cyrus. What does Cyrus do with this information? Meanwhile, by the way, the flames have been lit and the barbecue is starting to go. Okay. Well, this is reported to Cyrus. When Cyrus heard through his, in, through his interpreters, I want to come back to that, when Cyrus heard through his interpreters what Croesus had said, he relented and considered that he Cyrus, a human being, was burning alive another human being, one who had once been equal to him in good fortune. In addition, he feared retribution, reflecting how there is nothing stable in human affairs. Cyrus gets it, right? Cyrus gets, according to Herodotus, what Croesus had failed to understand until it was too late. That everything that uh, uh, Croesus had experienced Everything Cyrus was experiencing was something in principle that any of us could or would experience. Right? The human condition, that idea that uh, human beings are subject to the unexpected. And what I think is so powerful about this story is that detail, that this was something that was able to be communicated from the Lydian to the Persian by interpreters. This was, this was a truth that transcended culture. This was a truth that transcends language to the extent that Herodotus is writing history for posterity so that the deeds of human beings may not be forgotten. This is a message that transcends time. This is a message that all of us are in a position to receive. And it's a simple message, isn't it? Um, It's a profound message. It's something that I reflected on a great deal when I was teaching Herodotus. Uh, uh, here at Grand Valley, and that I invited my students to reflect upon. And now as a result of my own misfortune, right, my own brush with the unexpected, the profundity of that idea has really uh, come home to to, to roost. Uh, I think about it uh, uh, a great deal. And I wonder how we manage. I wonder how we manage as human beings uh, to live our lives as if uh, you know, ev- everything, everything is, is working out the way that it should. In principle, we should be uh, crushed. We should be overcome by the uncertainty right, that attends all of our lives, the contingency of our existence. Uh, but we don't. We don't either because we don't think about it or we try not to think about it, which I think is probably the default. But potentially, we have the ability then to reflect upon the commonality of that experience. It's been enormously important for me as I've gone through this journey to reflect upon the fact that even though what happened to me was sudden and unexpected and utterly contrary to reason that it could have happened to anybody. The universe wasn't singling me out. I hadn't done anything wrong. Right. In a sense, it wasn't about me. It was about the circumstances under which all of us live our lives. I credit this literature. I credit a sense of history. I credit that long perspective, that long and broad perspective that comes from engagement in these themes, that comes from the kind of liberal arts education we offer at this university, this sense of what it means to live as a human being uh, amidst all of the uncertainties of our existence. And that was a, that was a comfort uh, to me uh, that, to some extent, uh, forearmed and prepared me for what happened to me. I was fully conscious Through that entire experience, I remember hitting the side of that van. I remember lying there. I remember the dawning realization that I was unable to move my legs. I was aware that I was very seriously hurt. I was grateful that I was two blocks from a major trauma center. Um, You experience a great many emotions during that time, but I wasn't surprised I wasn't surprised, and I'm not giving myself any special credit here. But you know, I thought, well, you know, this is it. Not in the sense that this was the end, but that this was, this was the turning of that particular, um, um, you know, uh, wheel of wheel of fortune, if you want to put it that way. And it's that perspective that's given me, you know, both, uh, you know, I hope the serenity to accept the limitations that I have, but also the determination to continue to try to overcome them and to surpass them.
1: That was Charles Pazernick, Professor of Classics at Grand Valley State University, and before him, Michael DeWild, Director of the Kuzi Business Ethics Initiative at Grand Valley. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Hallenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Lise Whitney. Jabbar edits the podcast and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual Conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies. And it's been quite a few months, quite a year for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit HowensteinCenter.org and follow Hauenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.